0: Today's scripture reading will be from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, and it says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning. It's uh, good to be in your home. Uh, today with you and uh, we are going to continue on in our Matthew series in just in just a moment but I just want to make mention of, of a few things. Um, you know one of the intentions with our you know Christmas cards to missionaries is to get different opportunities for uh, Christian service before you as a church and so uh, you know, if, if this is something maybe that's foreign to you, you haven't you haven't done this before, and it seemed, maybe it seems kind of strange. I don't know these, these people. Perhaps you're new to the church. You know, you've never met them before. Well, just take you know take a look at the list of missionaries that's listed, um, either in the in the prayer thing or in uh, the um, in the on the website, and uh, and just commit to pray for them. You know, maybe maybe once a week you know, from now until the end of, of the year or, or, you know, every day for a month or, or whatever, and then write a card expressing that, uh, that you're praying for them and, uh, and, and that you're thankful for their service to the Lord uh, in, their, in their particular field, in their particular ministry. Um, we've got another opportunity that's going to come up, and we'll share details of the, that uh, just later. But it is going to be a food drive, and so just uh, keep your your radar uh, just set to be able to when you when you hear that uh, we want to be able to restock our, our food pantry as it's as, uh, it's much needed uh, in these days. And don't forget about uh, also our memory verse. You know, as a as a church, we want to we want to be able to hide God's word in our heart. And so it's Matthew 123. okay, Matthew 1.23, uh, and, and it's, it's, by the time, if you start learning it now, you'll have it down by Christmas, and that's a wonderful verse to be able to quote on Christmas Day. And if you don't know what the verse is, look it up, okay, look it up, memorize it, hide in your heart. I think it'll be pretty easy. I, I'm, I'm throwing you a softball for the first one, okay? Okay, well, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we go into the Word. Father, sometimes we we go through a a particular week, and when we get to the end of it, perhaps we realize we haven't really paid much attention to you. We've, We've been concerned with the things of the world, distractions. And yet, Father, you are faithful to us, even when even when we don't give you a, a second thought at times. Thank you for that great love that you have for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, there, there probably are times as well, being us, being sinners as we are, that we've, that we've gone against your will and your ways. But thank you that, that your mercy and your grace is, is great enough to cover all of our sins. Thank you that we can walk in a newness of life in Christ. May we live and rejoice in, in, the, uh, in the reality of that mercy. And Father, as we, as we may struggle with, with particular sins, uh, Father, help us to gain, to gain victory in them, Father. Not through our own self-discipline, but, but through our joy that's found in in your relationship with us, as a good, good Father, Lord, be with those who are who are sick, uh, those that uh, those that are really struggling. Father, we pray that you would meet them in their needs. Thank you that that you have struggled, Lord Jesus. And you have suffered more than any of us ever will. And so you have a great empathy toward us that is incomparable. And so may we continue to look to you. And may those who are suffering look to you knowing that that you know exactly what is going on. And and you you will satisfy them, Father. It's only you who can do that. Father, help us now as we look uh, into this next section of the Sermon on the Mount Father, we need uh, the illumination that comes to the Holy Spirit. And so help us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, the next part of, of this sermon on the Mount is, is a necessary introduction to the next section, which, which encompasses the, the remainder of chapter 5. This introduction is is necessary because of people's perceptions right now at the beginning of this sermon, and prior to this as well. And perceptions are powerful because they they shape our beliefs. So let me remind you of of the scene once again. The the Pharisees and, and the scribes I haven't mentioned the scribes yet. The scribes were the, the experts in the Old Testament law. These groups were the societal standard for what it meant to follow God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. Right? If you were to ask the, the common Jew in, in the first century, you know, how, how, do I, how do I follow God? What does that look like? Well, look over to the scribes and Pharisees. That's, that's how you follow God. That that was the perception. They were all about following the law. They devoted their life to it. And so society viewed them as as the most righteous people. Jesus comes on the scene with with no association to the scribes and Pharisees. His his earthly father, Jesus' earthly father, was, was not a religious leader. And, and Jesus himself did not train in this area. He did not train under the scribes or Pharisees. And so this seemingly common man starts teaching about God and his kingdom, but does so with an authority unlike the scribes and Pharisees. Up to this point in Matthew's Gospel account, we've seen, we've seen no confrontation with Jesus and these religious leaders. This is his first statement that shows that he will be in opposition to them and their views about how to be righteous in God's sight. Because Jesus was was so different from these current religious leaders of the day, there there was bound to be misunderstanding regarding Jesus' position, especially concerning the Old Testament law. If the religious leaders were so zealous for the law and Jesus was so different from them, did that mean that Jesus was anti-law? This this was the current thought concerning Jesus, and, and he knew it. So he dispels that notion in this section, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is clearly not anti-Old Testament law. That That was not only the thought about Jesus then, but that is actually a thought that still persists today about Christ there are many people that believe that Jesus came to tear down all the Old Testament teachings, just to eradicate it. Many don't read the Old Testament because they they think it no longer matters since Jesus came. And that is simply not true. In fact, if we go back one chapter in Matthew, we see the account of the temptation of Christ. And remember how he defeated the devil? He didn't come up with new principles for the day, but instead quoted from the law of God. Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament, and he upheld it because it was given by God, and it never goes out of fashion, even at his coming. The Old Testament law is is God lovingly showing us how to live as creatures created in his image and likeness. And and with it, we also see how we fall short of that way of living. So, So that is why Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Further, he says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, what does that mean? Well, this can be thought of on a couple different levels. Fulfillment can be thought of as accomplishment, like when you finish a race, right? You, you kind of, you, you accomplish that. You, you cross the finish line. I've, I've done it, okay? So Jesus was, was the only human being who could keep the Old Testament law perfectly. So, so he fulfilled it in that way. Right? He met all its, its standards. He, he could accomplish everything that the prophet said about the one that God said would come and rescue us. But fulfillment can also be thought of in terms of not only accomplishment, but in terms of purpose. Right, like, like when, when you take a test, Right? When you take a test, there's a purpose of that test. There's many purposes, not only to kind of pass the, the, um, the course, but it's to assess whether the teacher's doing a good job in teaching the material. It's assessing how, how well you've studied. Uh, a number of different things a test is for. Right? It has purpose. And in the Old Testament law, the purpose it had a great purpose. It was to point to Jesus. And and this this is another huge reason why the Old Testament is is still important today, because it still points to Jesus. Listen to John 5.39. Jesus says to the the scribes and Pharisees once again, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness to about me. The, the purpose of the Old Testament was to tell about Jesus. Let, let me just give you a few examples that we can see. How about the event of the Exodus? Right? God, God delivering his people out of the slavery of, of Egypt uh, to a new freedom, to a new uh, promised land. It, 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 that, That points to Jesus and his mission. He came to deliver us out of the slavery, not of a nation, but out of the slavery of sin and into a freedom. A freedom, a a freedom. Sin doesn't bind us anymore. It has no power over us anymore in Christ. Or how about the different types of of sacrifices that were performed in the tabernacle and in the temple? Right, those, those things, you know, they were often done for the for a, a very main purpose, often done because of sin, right? Here's, here's a sacrifice I'm putting before me. I've sinned, here's a sacrifice. And these point to the once and for all sacrifice that Jesus would make for us. The judges that God raised up to deliver his people when they fell into the hands of their enemies are all lesser versions of of Jesus, the great deliverer uh, who who God would send for us to deliver us not only from the enemy of sin but of of ourself as a sinner as well. Therefore the good news of salvation by grace through the person and work of Jesus is found in the Old Testament. J.C. Ryle said it like this. The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. Verse 18 continues the thought. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This this is a very emphatic statement that strengthens the durability of the Old Testament. Not even the smallest Hebrew letter or the the smallest uh, stroke of the pen, of the the quill, will pass away until it accomplishes all that it was intended to do. The strongest negative expression is used here to say that the, the law and the prophets will never, ever, ever pass away until all is accomplished. That really shows how serious Jesus was concerning uh, the accuracy of of his Bible, right, the Old Testament, as well as its continued preservation and importance today. So that means that that we can't ignore the teaching of the Old Testament. The implications of this can be seen in, in the last two verses, Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So, so we have, we are, we're therefore to uphold the law of God and, and encourage others to do the same. And there seems to be a great reward for obedience to the ways of God. But before considering this verse further, we have to read it with the last verse. They they go hand in hand. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This, This is another emphatic statement. The, the, the strongest negative in, in the original language is used here once again. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, ever, by no means, enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this, this seems a little strange, these two verses together. Because first we're told to uphold the law to achieve greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And then we're told that the, one, the ones who, who tried their hardest to uphold the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, were told that not, not even what they did, what they were doing, was enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we reconcile this? Well, let's start by listing what we know. I think that's important. That's that's always a good first step. What, what, What do we know, first of all? Well, first thing is that the righteousness that we need to enter the kingdom of God cannot be about effort. It can't be about our striving, because Jesus says we need more righteousness than the ones who are considered to be the most righteous of society. If anybody was striving toward that, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. The second thing we know is that the righteousness we practice, once we are considered citizens of the kingdom of God, must be different from the kind of righteousness coming from the scribes and the Pharisees. Right, these were the probable two thoughts going through the heads of those listeners that Jesus was teaching. So let's take those two things we know from, from the last two verses and form two questions that we need to answer. Because those two things we know bring up some questions in my mind. Here's the first question that comes to my mind. What kind of righteousness do we need to enter the kingdom of heaven? What kind of righteousness do we need to enter the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom? It is quite clear that it is not the righteousness of the Jewish that the Jewish society looked up to in that day, right? The practice of the scribes and Pharisees. So, so what, what did their righteousness look like? What did it look like? Well, they, they saw the law of God as something that they could accomplish on their own, right? The, the way they did this was by creating a system of, of disciplined living to keep them on the straight and narrow. To keep them away from what they would consider the edge, right? Where you might fall over and sin. They refer to it often as a, a fence. You, you, put, you put a fence up before the cliff and that's, that's going to assure that you don't fall over the edge. And so, so with this disciplined living and with this fence, they, they lived in, in, in a way that, that kept them from the edge in their, in their minds. But there was only one problem. This system never touched their hearts. They became prideful that they had the appearance of righteousness before others. And that others could not attain that same level of righteousness that they professed to have. Right? Their, their hearts were untouched. Jesus would later refer to them as whitewashed tombs. Right? The, the, the outside would be, would be nice and clean and brilliantly shining in the sun. But inside... Inside, we know it's inside a tomb. It's full of death and rottenness. That's, that's our problem. It's, it's not that we are good people trying to stop doing a few bad things. We are rotten at the heart level and we try hard not to let things bubble up to the surface, but they often do. And we say, and, and, and the things that we do and the things that we say, when, they, when that bubbles up to the surface, often goes against God's ways. And further, we end up hurting people and others, as well as God. So, so we need a righteousness that is not our own to possess. Because we don't have it within us. And that's why Jesus came and died on the cross. This is how the Apostle Paul succinctly put it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus took your sin And and the justice that it deserved on the cross and suffered, in your place. So that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the only truly righteous one, gives us His righteousness that we could never achieve on our own. And we're told God did this for our sake for our benefit because because we are hopeless of ever having a righteousness from our own efforts. We can only obtain this exchange of, of our sin for His righteousness when we become in Him. That's what it says in that little verse. To be in Him means we're no longer going our own way but trusting Jesus Christ as the one we need in order to have the righteousness we could never earn to enter God's kingdom. This this is the righteousness we need that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, a righteousness that is gifted to us from the one who is perfect, not only in action and in word, but in heart. No other righteousness will do. There is no other true righteousness. And it's a free gift for whoever whoever will receive it. Even a former Pharisee like the Apostle Paul who says in Philippians 3, I haven't gained a righteousness of my own. I've gained a righteousness that was not my own in Christ. Here's the the second question. Once we have that righteousness from Jesus, how do we practice righteousness in the right way? (laughs) Because it can't be like the scribes and Pharisees, right? So, again, let me tell you the question again. Once we have that righteousness from Jesus how do we practice righteousness, right right living, in the right way? Because obviously, if we practice it like the scribes and the Pharisees, that will not be the right way, which is trying to please God or earn his favor. When the scribes and the Pharisees tried to get others to live in the way that they were living, most of the time, people couldn't bear the burden and they, and they broke under the pressure. It was a fearful way to live, always wondering if, if you broke a law or a principle. The burden was just too great. Jesus actually rebukes them for this later on, for, for, for what they do to their disciples. Those who, could, those who could handle the discipline became like the scribes and the Pharisees, Prideful of their accomplishments and they and they look down on others. They actually diverted people from the one from one of the intentions of the law, which was seeing our inability to keep God's ways. The answer to this question really hinges on the first question. Because through Jesus we obtain a righteousness not of our own, a foreign righteousness, we have a different mindset, a different heart toward keeping God's law or a different thought toward right living or righteousness. We don't need to live right to please God because we have God's approval with our possession of Christ's righteousness. And that can never be taken away. When Jesus was asked what the, what the greatest commandment was, his answer was to love God with, with every part of your being. Right? That, that's, that's what undergirds all of the Old Testament law. A heart of love toward God. And that is why God cares so much about the heart, because out of it flows who we truly are. We obtain Jesus' righteousness on account of God's deep, deep love toward us. We, we can't love God if we are trying to keep a bunch of commands that are impossible for sinners to keep. We can love God when we realize just how much He loved us first by sending His Son. Because only then do his commands not seem burdensome, but life giving. And when somebody really loves you, don't you want to love them and serve them in return? So so the duty that the law once seemed to be in Christ becomes a delight. sometimes in a marriage we can, we can take our spouse's love for granted or, or forget about the love that we once had for them. The same is true for our relationship with God, and, that, and that's what happened in, uh, in the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Right? They, they were doing all these good works. They were being obedient toward God's laws, but But Jesus said that they abandoned their love they had at first. They they, they forgot about how much God loves them. So they're then told to repent, return to their first love, and do the works that they did at first. See, it's the same works, but it's a different heart. They began to, to... the motivation of the works turned away from love toward, toward just a, a duty. And Jesus says, no, turn it back toward love. You'll still do the same works, but they'll be for a different reason, and they'll be a delight. You see, the works without the love toward Jesus who gave us his righteousness are of no value. They're just just like a a clanging cymbal. They don't have any effect. It's it's easy to slip into the ways of the scribes and Pharisees. Even in church. Even to those who go to church. The solution is not not a challenge to do better, but... a reminder. Just, Just look back at the deep, deep love God has for you through Jesus. And that love will compel you to walk according to God's ways with delight. That's what we want. That's what God wants. And, and you know, if you're a parent, you can kind of get this too, because there's a difference between your child giving you obedience begrudgingly or your child doing it out of delight. I don't know about you, but I never glory in that first one. But oh how I love that second one. so if you if you are concerned about the lack of of obedience in in yourself or maybe one of one of your church family members don't challenge them to do better don't do that encourage them that Jesus fiercely loves them let's pray Father, you know that our hearts slip into pharisaical ways. We, we can often grow cold toward, toward your love, and, and there, there's a myriad of reasons for that. But Father, help us to keep our eyes focused on our Savior. Our Savior who, who loved us before we could ever love him before we were even lovely, and who suffered for us so that we could have a righteousness that's not our own, the only righteousness that can allow us to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, Father, help us to practice right living with a right heart, a heart that has its affections on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.